Well, praise the Lord. How's everybody doing this evening? Thumbs up? All right, thumbs are all up. That's good. Praise the Lord. Glad to have you all here. Praise the Lord. We're, um, we're going to kick off tonight on a series called Equipping the Saints. Give me a scripture. Where is that written? Ephesians, where? Chapter 4, verse 12, right? Equipping the saints for the work of ministry. How many are saints in here? Every hand better be up or we're going to do some something. All right, that's good. Because we're not sinners, we're, we're saints. We've been saved by grace, but we're not, we're not sinners. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. It says here, he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the purpose of perfecting the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's the King James. New Living says, these gifts have been given to the church, and he lists the fivefold ministers, and it says, their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. And this will continue until the unity of faith and the knowledge of God's Son and we all become mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete stature of Christ. I don't think we're there yet, right? Right, but so we're going to continue to equip. So what we're entering, and if you'll just take the front of your notebook and look at the uh, cover there, I want to kind of set what um, is really in my heart. I, a few months ago, I was in the health club, and I'm in Planet Fitness, and I'm working out, I'm in my set, and this guy I've never seen before, don't know who he was, never seen him since, walks up to me on his phone, and he says, get back to the basics. And he smiles and he walks out of the gym. And I'm like, okay, Lord, either he's telling me I got to work harder. So I processed through that. And I believe um, I have become aware, I saw a Barner statistic statistic that says the biblical knowledge, the biblical understanding of foundational Christianity in the body of Christ is at an all-time low in over several centuries. I don't know if you ever watched Fox, but I was watching Waters World. They were interviewing people over Christmas, men on the street, women on the street. So what is Christmas? What's the meaning of it? Where was Christ born? And man, I got convinced. Okay, we need some foundational principles to be built. So we're going to take several months, and actually we're going to have different teachers come in and take aspects of it. Tonight, we're going to ground some of this. If you've been a believer for a long time, you say, That's, I understand that. It's pretty fundamental. It's good still to go back and look at some of the groundings of that, but these are some of the topics. Um, We're going to look at what we believe. We're going to look at why we worship. We're going to look at not only why we believe it or why we do what we do. What's the principles behind when you're here on a Sunday morning or we're out out and about, whether it's in the nations or in the street, um, the, the things we do and how we do it, what's our protocol, what's the biblical basis of that? And so it'd be good to be grounded in what that looks like. We're also going to look at our own unique call. Every body of Christ, you look at 1 Corinthians 12, he says, he places you in a body. And then he tells you, Paul uses this analogy, is um, you can't, the, the nose can't tell the eye, you know, you, you're not as good as I am, right? The head, Christ, is the one. He's the one who turns the body. But we all have a body part that we're supposed to be part of. So find out what body part you're in. And so once you do that, then you are responsible to be equipped by the equippers, but you do the work. 
and that responsibility and the building up of the church itself. So we're going to look at different uh, aspects. In a few weeks, we just finished the dream school. That was awesome, right? That was really wonderful. Um, we're also in a couple, we're going to take the next uh, two weeks, no, one week, we'll be here next week, actually we're going to be here every week, but in two weeks, what's the date on this? Josh, where's Josh, Josh? Uh, is YWAM Boston coming? The 24th. So uh, Youth with a Mission is coming with 30 people. We just iced it tonight. Um, they're coming with 30 people. They were here a year ago, if some of you remember. They came with a team. They're on a circuit. They set up an amazing presentation of the gospel. We would like, we're going to give you a postcard in, a, in about a week or so. We'd like you to invite friends, neighbors. We're going to actually canvas all the local neighborhoods. And uh, it is, we had, uh, was it 12 salvations last year? That came when they came. It's going to be a powerful night. So two Wednesdays from now, come. We'll we'll start. We're going to host them with a small dinner, and then we'll come here. We'll start. We think from six thirty. Might go a little longer till eight thirty that night. But they will set up the sanctuary, and it will be a powerful evangelical message. We're going to have our youth and our children. It's a family-centered event, so they'll be here. Um, then. The third week, we'll, we'll be back here again with some of the grounding, and then we will start in February. Pastor Mike is going to, and Amber are going to teach on the tabernacle, and I believe, Parthena, where's Parthena? They're working on it, right? Um, the Feast of Purim happens the end of February. We're going to go into a three, I'll, I'll preach on it that Sunday before, but we're going to have a three-day fast. We just finished our seven-day fast as a body. We're going to do a three-day Esther fast on Purim. We'll teach what that's about. Um, and then the ta- we're going to, I'm told, they're going to transform the sanctuary here into a tabernacle. Wow. Yipes. They're going to set up the tabernacle in here. So we'll have the Holy of Holies. Is that the court of the Gentiles out there? Or? We get our coffee or something? Anyway, um, so, but, but we're being intentional right now in the equipping and the grounding of the saints. And so uh, we will go from that. We're going to look at, uh, we're going to bring in one of the experts. We're going to talk about uh, finances, both business finance, uh, biblical finances. What does that mean? So we're, we're selecting topics. You can see them here. Uh, some of them will be Consistent with our preaching, what is the baptism in the Holy Spirit? What is the understanding of covenant? Biblical finances and God's economy. Spiritual warfare. And so there'll be several. So what I'd like you to do is bring this back every week. We will provide the handouts every week. All you got to do is there'll be a hole punch. That'll all be punched for you, and you just stick them in here. So towards the end of the year, you will have a book that is pretty well grounded. So I want to say, well... If you want to explain to one of your loved ones why we do what we do, where is it found biblically, at least you'll have some references to where we are, okay? All right, so I'm trying to be intentional with what I heard the Lord say. So let me pray right now. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your word that allows us to look at it. There may be differences of opinion about some of the theological uh, principles in it, but it is a grounded word and it's a good word. And you told us that we could equip ourselves with it and you will, you will hem us in and hedge us in. You'll convict us in ways that we need to change. But you'll also make us prepared for all those good things you have for us. So Lord, as we launch out on this journey, I pray now 
for your wisdom and revelation, Holy Spirit. You said if we lack wisdom, we could ask you. You're the teacher. You're the one that Jesus said is called alongside to equip us, to comfort us, to lead us, and to tell us the truth. And that truth that will set us free. And we give you praise tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you'll open up with the second page that has the objectives, what I'm desiring and asking the Lord will do in this next several months is to build the foundation of scriptures in each of us, one, so we'll understand full freedom in Christ, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. There'll be a victory side of this, but there's also authority. I just met with a couple battling stuff, lots of fear. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. So who did? (laughs) So if there's any fear, anxiety, stuff, torment, well, wait a second. We have the one who said, I have given you not a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a soundness. So authority and victory in Christ, rightly dividing truth. We're going to touch some, we're going to look at some touchy areas uh, in the men's group. Man, I'm excited with what John and, and Ron are doing. Monday night in the men's group, we started a study on the book of Titus. Um, John handed out a notebook, prayed over by his wife for all of us men to keep our notes on, and we're looking at subjects like what is it that makes a kingdom man? We know in the book of Titus and in 1 Timothy, which is our homework assignment for this week, is it tells you what are the criteria for an elder to be put into the church. It says it shouldn't be a heavy drinker, should be a, a, a man who's married to one wife, it, uh, that should not be angry, should, not be, uh, should be able to entertain people aware uh, in their home. So there are principles and qualifications that allow us to know by reflection of that scripture, when you want to put somebody in a position of leadership, they should, you should bounce those criteria off them. In fact, Paul told his son Titus, two sons, he listed Timothy and Titus, when you go to plant all these churches, make sure when you set up your eldership, these are the people that you put in those places. And so um, we want to be rightly dividing truth. We got into some discussions about uh, those positions and what does that mean? So some of these areas are going to be controversial, but I'm not backing off on them. We're going to go at them. You can have difference of opinion uh, about these things. We had an interesting debate the last day, even today. Once saved, always saved. Next week, we're going to dive into, uh, there are those, and I came out of a denomination that believe. in fact, I went to seminary in a denomination that believe once you're saved, you're saved. That's it, no matter what. Um, there are others that believe, well, no, you can lose your salvation. And I can give you scriptures on both sides of that equation. There's tension in that. And so we had debates today. It was kind of interesting. And next week, we're going to look uh, at 1 John 5. He says, there, John in his 90th year, writes the first John. He says, I write this that you might know that you have salvation. And he gives nine points that you can bounce where you are to know if you're saved or not. Some of it's interesting. So we're going we're gonna to look at that next week and uh, rightly divide that truth. The other principle here, objective is to release grace and mercy in the midst of us growing together. Relationship building. Turn to the next page. All of this is great. If you got knowledge, the Pharisees had knowledge, but they were not saved. You have all this truth, but you don't know me. And so we could get all this done, and if we don't know him, we missed it. So we know that Jesus came, and he, and he allows, he changed the world. And you're going to hear, uh, I pulled a, we're going to see a 19-minute video here in just a few minutes from Admiral McRaven. 
35-year Navy Admiral, Navy SEAL. He's uh, giving an address, a commencement address to the University of Texas. And he says, I've learned some things. First of all, for an admiral to get it down to 19 minutes at a commencement was awesome. But he pulls down 10 principles of life that I got to believe he's a believer. And when you look at them, the principles, the reflections of that, and I've, I've jotted those if you want to just look at them. Um, one of the things he says is, if every one of us would clearly impact just 10 people in your lifetime, I mean significantly impact 10 people in your lifetime, at the end of your life, 800 million people will have been impacted if everyone took 10. And he said, if everyone took another 10, within a century, the world is different. Now, we know that that's not the world that we're in right now. But he, he brings out these 10 listed principles. And I won't hit them now. I'm going to let him share those to you. But I just, I felt like the application spiritually for us, go and make disciples. He didn't say go and have somebody say the sinner's prayer or walk the aisle. I mean, that's good. It's necessary because Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. But he didn't stop there. He said, go and make disciples of all men. Go into the nation. So we're on a discipleship road right now and equipping. So, so if you'll get ready, let's show this video. I think you'll enjoy it. I, I hope you do. I, I certainly get excited on these kind of leadership things. But go ahead, Greg. Let's tee it up. Thank you. Well, thank you, President Powers, Provost Fenves, deans, members of the faculty, family and friends, and most importantly, the class of 2014. It is, it is indeed an honor for me to be here tonight. It's been almost 37 years to the day that I graduated from UT. I remember a lot of things about that day. I remember I had a throbbing headache from a party the night before. I remember I had a serious girlfriend, who I later married. That's important to remember, by the way. And I remember I was getting commissioned in the Navy that day. But of all the things I remember, I don't have a clue who the commencement speaker was, and I certainly don't remember anything they said. So acknowledging that fact, if I can't make this commencement speech memorable, I will at least try to make it short. So the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. Tonight, there are almost 8,000 students, or there are more than 8,000 students, graduated from UT. So that great paragon of analytical rigor, ask.com, says that the average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. 10,000 people, that's a lot of folks. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people and another 10, then in five generations, 125 years, the class of 2014 will have changed the lives of 800 million people. 800 million people. Think about it. Over twice the population of the United States. Go one more generation, and you can change the entire population of the world. Eight billion people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, you're wrong. 
I saw it happen every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. A young army officer makes a decision to go left instead of right down a road in Baghdad, and the 10 soldiers with him are saved from a close-in ambush. In Kandahar province, Afghanistan, a non-commissioned officer from the female engagement team senses that something isn't right and directs the infantry platoon away from a 500-pound IED, saving the lives of a dozen soldiers. But if you think about it, not only were those soldiers saved by the decisions of one person, but their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Well, I'm confident that it will look much, much better. But if you'll humor this old sailor for just a moment, I have a few suggestions that may help you on your way to a better world. And while these lessons were learned during my time in the military, I can assure you that it matters not whether you ever served a day in uniform. It matters not your gender, your ethnic or religious background, your orientation, or your social status. Our struggles in this world are similar, and the lessons to overcome those struggles and to move forward, changing ourselves and changing the world around us will apply equally to all. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and, and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning, we were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, <laughs> that you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. 
During SEAL training, the students during training, the students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day, your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be eight to 10 feet high, and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort, or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. Several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right, it went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare, or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, 
something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, those standards, your name was posted on a list, and at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit. No one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day, you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting, an interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life head first. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, the student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles head first. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique ex extensively during training. 
The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. During the entire swim, even well below the surface, there is some light that comes through. It is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the center line, and the deepest part of the ship. This is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship, where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening, and where it gets to be easily disoriented, and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the run water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down in the Mud Flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive this freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, 
and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much. Hook em horns. So if you turn and kind of look at the, the biblical principles, you know, you can see what Admiral McRaven was saying, but we know as believers, there's so many principles here that the little things in life matter, do them well. It's those little compromises, it's uh, the little foxes that need to be controlled and taken care of, right? I like that, find someone to paddle with. And then the coxswain, I used to be on a boat crew, and you know that coxswain is the one who sets the tempo, row, row, and so you need someone. We need Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit to bring that, that guide and that tempo in our life. I like the part of measure person by the size of their heart. In fact, he says, if you want to measure someone, measure them by their faith, not the size of their flippers. I like that. Um, you're not perfect, so get over it. <laughs> and uh, it, life is not fair. I think if uh, we really focused on that and realized we're going to have some suffering and some more. In fact, Jesus tells us, Paul tells us, you're going to suffer, but it's going to help you in the perfection side of things, right? Life is filled with circuses. You had any of those? today. <laughs> Don't be afraid of the chaos. Sometimes we face obstacles. Take them as they come. You may have to go face first or head first, he said. I like this one. First Peter 5, 8, 9 comes out in, verse, in number 7 there. It says, Don't back down from the sharks. He tells us to take a firm stance against the devil, right? So there's times when you're just going to have to face him and punch him in the nose. Be your very best in the darkest moments of life. Believe in the power of hope, right? There's there's something about hope. There's so much hopelessness right now throughout. We see this, and there's just this desire that Jesus gives us hope. Sing in the mud. I like that. That's, we know that. Cease, praise without singing. Prayer without ceasing, right? So when you're down, start just singing. That's a good thing. And then never give up. Persevere. Jesus tells us in the book of Revelations, those who persevere to the end will be saved. So I think there's just some really wonderful principles there that... Uh, I love what the Admiral said there. Amen? All right. Let's take a look at what we believe. In lesson number one, if you'll turn the one to the page that has the little dove on it, what we believe, foundational principles. I want to read these, and I'd like to then have any questions that you might have. But these, if you'll notice, um, 
many today don't even know what the Apostles' Creed were. So the following page there, I have both the Apostles' Creed, and we don't often say the Lord's Prayer, but um, when I was growing up, that was pretty principled in where we were. So let's look at the belief systems. These are um, the, the godly principles by which Christendom is based. We believe that there is one living God, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son. We believe that Jesus is both God and man. We believe in the virgin birth, sinless life, miracles and teachings, the substitutionary atoning death, the bodily resurrection, the ascension into heaven, and the personal and visible return of the second coming. We believe in the Holy Spirit who came forth from the Father and the Son to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to regenerate, sanctify, empower for ministry to all who believe in Jesus Christ. We believe the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and that he is the believer's helper, guide, and teacher. We believe in the present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit and in the exercising of all biblical gifts of the Spirit. That's where some deviation takes place between denominations. We believe in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, New Testament, are the Word of God, fully inspired and infallible rule of faith and practice, that they are the interpreted, to be interpreted according to both context and purpose. Now, the right side, with some of the application, we believe that all people are sinful by nature and choice and are therefore under condemnation and in the need of salvation. We believe that salvation is offered to all mankind and is found only, only in accepting the intoning death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in salvation by grace alone. Just to stop here, there are several churches and denominations that have gotten off track here. It says there are many roads up to heaven, that there is no hell. There's a, there's a mega church proclaiming there is no hell. God is so loving that he would never send anyone to hell. That is a, um, what I believe is what Paul warned Timothy. There will be a time where they will give in to doctrines of demons and teachings that is wrong. But there are people throughout Christendom that are starting to believe false teachings. They don't understand the biblical basis of what's in the word. So they give in to tickling things in their ears that they like. They say what they like. It's okay if you lead. You like to, to do all these things. It doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. We believe in the church, both invisible and visible, worldwide and local, the living and spiritual body of which Christ is the head and regenerated persons are the members of his body. We believe Christ established two sacraments for the church, both baptism and the Lord's Supper. Let me stop here. Um, a sacrament, let me give you a definition of a sacrament. You might want to just jot this down. It's pretty straightforward. It's a religious ceremony or an act of the Christian church that is regarded as an outward sign and a visible sign of an inward and spiritual divine grace. So it's a religious ceremony or an action. Think of it in your, if you've ever been water baptized. In the water baptism, there, there are multiple baptisms we'll probably deal with. I believe there are three baptisms that we're baptized in Christ. In fact, first in Hebrews chapter 6, it speaks of the principles, there are six things he lists as the foundations of faith, and in baptisms is plural in that discussion. And he says, so they were baptized in Christ when we were born again, but then there's the water baptism, and then, of course, there's the spirit baptism, which we'll look at in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 19. And so 
there is this sacrament of baptism. And in, this is where different parts of the church, the Catholics have more sacraments that they proclaim. And I'll list those in a minute. But the majority of Christendom believe there are two sacraments. There's the sacrament of communion and the sacrament of water baptism. Those are the two that are held to. Now, the Catholics also include baptism in the air, or sacraments in the area of not only the Lord's Supper and water baptism, but they add confirmation, penance, anointing for sickness, ordination, and matrimony. So those are sacraments that the Catholics have added, uh, and you could talk about what those, and of course, in the, in the Christian church, all of those activities, confirmation, repentance, anointing the six, according with James chapter five, ordination ceremonies, the laying out of hands, um, and marriage, those are all done under the auspices of God and covenant. We'll talk more about that in, the, in another session. But we believe in those two sacraments, of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We believe in the laying on of hands for the releasing of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's controversial in some areas of Christendom. But we believe that for the receiving of gifts in the Spirit. That's, we saw that in Paul's discussion to his spiritual son, Timothy. That he says, you received the spiritual gift when the elders laid hands on you, right? Prophetic word was released. So we can back all of this up biblically. Um, those who are ordained to lead the church. We also believe in the Apostles' Creed as the embodying fundamental truth of Christian faith and endorse the historical Greek Orthodox creeds of catechisms of the church. So I want to um, look at the Apostles' Creed. I've had questions sometimes about uh, some of the statements that are in here. What does that mean? So the Apostles' Creed. Now, if you go back to the canonization of the word, which books were selected to make up today's, the, the Bible? How did the... Um, how did the Nicene Council come together? Why were these books selected? They had a screening process that we believe biblically led by the apostles of that time that said this is the inspired word of God. They also developed the Apostles' Creed, which takes, it's kind of a, a statement of faith for all Christendom. So it was established uh, way back in the early church. I believe in God the Father Almighty and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate and buried the third day, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father, from where he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the universal church, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead, and life everlasting. Amen. I've, I've even was questioned today, what do you mean about the universal church? That sounds a little scary. Because there is a Unitarian church that is made up by homosexual leadership that says you can believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, they don't profess Christ to be the sin. That's, so we're, we're talking about, when we say universal church, we're talking about there are many denominations, but there's one Christ. Many body parts, so universally the Christ is the head. That's what they mean in the Apostles' Creed by the universal church worldwide. The Lord's Prayer, why don't we say this together? Can we stand? Let's just say this together. Oftentimes we don't, and I think we should. Jesus taught his disciples to pray this. Our Father, who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good stuff in there. Thank you. Of course, you can find that in Matthew 6, 9, and in Luke 11. So let's break down in the foundational part of this. What is it that we believe? What's the biblical basis of what I just read in those statements of faith? So if you go on um, our website and you'll look up what is the Global River Church believe, you'll find it, these statements here in, uh, that I just read to you before. But let's look at eternally existing God. Are you there? Page 1A, what we believe. Eternally existing God, existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you were going to explain to a little child the three-in-one God, does somebody have an example that they use? So there's three um, forms of water, depending on the environment that they're in, right? That's good. Another one, Virginia, you just said one? The egg. The egg. We use that with our kids and grandkids. Um, the egg has three distinct parts, right? It has the shell, the yolk, the, yolk and, the and the white. Which part of it is not an egg? It's all egg. But it's made up of three distinctive parts, right? When you look at the whole, it's one egg. But it is three parts. I think that's a good analogy. Any others? Anybody else? Shamrock. Tell me about that one, Kathy. Okay. Good. I like that. Philip? Okay. So we're made up of different body parts and uh, all have distinctive parts. Okay. Good. I like it. When, Danny? Yeah. Okay. The pneuma, the pneumaticas, and the soma. Yeah, good. Okay. Example? The apple. There you go. Okay. U.S. government. Wow. Ah. There you go. Spoken by the Secret Service guy. I love it. Yeah. That's good. And I'm in trouble sometimes. There you go. That's right. And, there, and you have different hats and different roles, different responsibilities. Yeah, what I do in one place. For, yeah, I like those analogies. These are good. When, when you try to explain, we've been in Muslim countries and places where they don't have a clue what you're talking about. And when, what are you talking about? A triune God. These are so simple applications of how you explain those things are good. You can use them as... And so I've listed um, there at the bottom, number seven, the egg and the water example, the liquid, solid, and steam. We know biblically uh, from Genesis, we are a, um, the biblical foundation of creation. There are those that believe in all sorts of crazy things. Well, we believe in the biblical formation of creation. There is a big bang. Science is finding out that there really was a big bang, that it all started at, at once. They've now measured back Light waves, I love this kind of stuff. When I, because you know, my, my nuclear background, we, we look at waves and particles and the whole theory of relativity. And so, when they start, to, when science starts to find out 
we can actually measure the length of the wave and the history associated with that wave and when it began. So there really was a big bang. God said, let there be light, and there was. <laughs> and it's still going at a, a crazy rate right now. All right. Um, the triune God, we talk about in the Latin, it's uh, trinitatis, means the threeness or tripersonality of God. And we've talked through that. The virgin birth, the substitutionary death for Christ and resurrection, the coming again. The virgin prophecy, we shared uh, during the work up to the, Christian t- uh, to the Christmas time, we shared this, that uh, in 700 B.C., Actually, Isaiah the prophet was kind of frustrated. He was bringing a, a word of correction to one of the kings, and he asked the king to give, give me something. That you, you want to see a sign? I'll give you a sign. You pick it. He goes, oh, no, no, I can't do that. He says, well, then I'll pick one. A virgin will give, give birth to a child, and they will call him Emmanuel. That was prophesied, and they validated this. This is, this is important. They validated this when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1948. There were... I think it was either 33 or 36, I forget. They found 36, some of the full copies of the full scroll of the book of Isaiah. And so that kind of throws the Jews for a loop, especially in Isaiah 53 when it says, he bore our sins. (laughs) You go, what do you do with that one? And they're like, hmm. So this is the place where we know that the virgin birth was prophesied 700 years before it occurred. And so... We, that's, the, that's the premise and the belief system validated now even by archaeological finds. Um, there were at least 500 eyewitnesses. We, we saw that. You see this in Corinthians. Many of them were martyred. But there were at least 500 eyewitnesses that saw Christ after the resurrection. In, in, a, in addition to the apostles, you know, he showed up to the disciples. Um, but 500 eyewitnesses saw him after and then, of course, there were those that saw him when he was ascending on the Mount of Olives. So this is that belief. So if all that occurred, he said, I'm coming back again, we know that that's the basis. So the second coming of Christ, I just listed just a few there in B4. The second coming of Christ, what Jesus said and what the prophetic words were uh, that said he's coming back. So he's coming back. And that ought to cause a lot of hope in us, right? Many, Terry and I have, Pastor Terry and I have often talked about this. Paul thought it was going to happen in his day. I think almost every generation says, man, it's right around the corner, right around the corner. And for sure, it might be right around the corner. Right now with the formation of Israel, the, the, the recapture of the, uh, Jerusalem and all of the other prophetic things that are happening, the formation of the axis of evil that has now come. You look at, in Ezekiel where it says there will be a day when Magog will come and Libya and all of the uh, alliances there, Iran, Persia, those things are in place, and they're also being, they're armed with nuclear weapons. So when he says, when Peter says, there will be a day where, where the elements will melt with fervent heat, well, we, we have the capability to incinerate the world right now. And so that's in our generation, right? On the submarines that I was on, we carried enough to exterminate the earth. So... We can see here that uh, these promises that are there are founded by Scripture. The Holy Spirit sent as a gift. I don't think we need to spend too much time here. We know that uh, in John 14, Jesus said, I'm going to go away. The Father is going to send this, the gift. And when he comes, he will lead you and guide you in all truth. So the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father. It's a gift. In Luke 11, he says, ask the Father for the gift. 
If he gives evil gifts to his children, how much, if an, if an evil father can give evil gifts to a child, give good gifts to a child, and how much more would the heavenly father give good gifts to his children? Yeah, I finally got it right. Okay. Um, the Holy Spirit empowers believers to build the church. First Corinthians, we're going to spend a whole uh, session, maybe even two, on all the spiritual gifts and impartation, and we will actually have an impartation service around that. The scriptures are the word of God and are good for instructing us how to live. Now, I just listed a few there. <clears throat> Second Timothy 3.16 is probably the most. So when, when someone says, well, why do you believe the word? I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here. But let me uh, just read Second Timothy 3.16 to you. When someone says, well, why do you believe the word? Well, the word says we ought to believe it. In fact, it's given. It says verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. So there's another 316 scripture. 2 Timothy 316. All scripture is inspired by God. Inspired. That's interesting. That's the, that's the word for word translation. King James says all scripture is given by inspiration to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, correct us when we are wrong, teach us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So the word is there, and it is a sharp, two-edged sword full of living power, Hebrews 4.12. The scriptures are the word of God inerrant. Look at E2. This always, uh, when someone says, why do you believe this? There's, there's inaccuracies or there's there's differences, there's tension in the scriptures, uh, really. 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period with hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that have already been fulfilled. That's got to be a miracle. If I started right over here and I had a Parthena, you ever do that phone thing in, the, in school? So you start and just start... You whisper in his ear, and we'll get over here, and let's say find out what was finally said at the end of this thing. We can't even get it right in the sanctuary with 30 people. All these cultures over 1,500 years with all these different authors? Come on. If that doesn't speak some kind of revelation to you about God's power and word, I don't know. All right, turn the page. The other biblical reasons for what we believe and why we believe it, man is sinful. Salvation is only one way. He who has the Son has the Father. Who does not have the Son does not have the Father. In the Dome of the Rock, I'm told, I've not been inside it, but if you were to go into the Dome of the Rock in the temple, the Muslim temple, I'm told that written around the center of the dome in Arabic is the, is the statement that there is no father, therefore there is no son. No wonder Esau was told prophetically he would never have peace with any of his brethren. And so there is only one way to the father, and it is through the son. So wherever you get any other doctrine from anything else, that's false doctrine. There are those principles that we cannot compromise on, right? The local church. Well, I hear this often. Oh, I don't need to go to church. I, can, I am the church. Well, then why did they spend so much time planting churches, risking their lives, causing riots, causing, you know, <laughs> because the body of Christ is made up of many parts, and the church and all the small groups of the church make up that body. When we, we'll look at some of these, but the churches were planted and leaders were raised up 
You look at Acts chapter 11, the Antioch church was a mission planting church. And then you look at Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, Corinthians, Romans, Galatians. These were all church. He, he talks to the seven churches in Revelation that were actual churches at the time, but they also are church representations spiritually of today. And so we need to honor the body of Christ. And I've been convicted in the past, don't talk negatively of another denomination or another church. If someone were to call my wife something, you'd have a problem with me. And I think Jesus has a problem, the Father has a problem, if we start making fun of his bride. So let's shut our mouth on that and don't drag them through it. Now, if they're, they're speaking error, we might need to expose error, but there's a way to do it, right? Okay. Foundations. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. I'm going to believe that all of y'all that are here are born again. But I did write three, I, gap, I gathered both three parts. One is the new birth, foundationally. I have the justification, justified never sinned, and then sanctification, which is the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. I want to just, I'll touch on those quickly in our remaining few minutes. All persons born are separated by our nature and predisposition for sin. There is none that is not in need of a Savior. None does good. All have sinned and fallen short. That's Romans 3. In fact, if you just kind of walk through each of the chapters of Romans, it's such a good uh, laying out for the Roman church. Paul does a great job of walking through why we need a Savior. And then what he did and why we need the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, he deals with the Spirit. I think it's uh, 25 times he speaks of the Holy Spirit in that chapter. And so the new birth, the process begins with the Holy Spirit, draws us to the Father. We can't take credit for that. In John 6, there under 2a, it says, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. So you may be used. I know uh, we have some evangelists in here that have that. Uh, Doug was sharing at men's group Monday night how he was sharing with People in, in, and Pastor Willie was sharing also uh, yesterday, today, I guess it was, on what happens in, when he's at the jail. This, this place where we are called to evangelize, this is what Admiral McRaven was speaking. What if we really impacted 10 people's lives? How did you get saved? Who talked to you about this? Who witnessed to you? Who prayed for you? But it's the work of the Holy Spirit that draws them. You may be the one, you, remember it says, Paul writes, one plants, one waters, and one harvests. So we don't know if you're in the harvest phase, the watering phase, or the planting phase, but do something. <laughs> and do it with love, do it well. You know, um, that's that desire. So the new birth. Conviction begins with the Holy Spirit. Pray for them. Turn to page number four. Romans 10, 9, and 10, uh, the day that my wife arranged for a man to come to our house after our daughter was healed, Bill Marshall sat. I still remember where we were sitting in our house we had just purchased, and Bill Marshall said to me, he was a wine distributor who is now a Baptist minister, at least he was last time I had contact of him. He sat there and said, Tom, Doug, you always say, I lead them down the Romans road. Isn't that what you call it? Right. Doug's an evangelizer. And he says, I'll lead him down the Romans road. I like it. 
Well, that's what he was doing with me. He says, you need to confess the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. My response was that that, that, that sounds too simple. Well, it wasn't meant to be hard. <laughs> Just got to get it in your heart, Tom. So I did, and I spoke those words, and that was the start of my journey so many years ago. After the new birth, now, I want to get foundationally on this one because next week I'm going to set you up. There's a debate, once saved, always saved. And we're going to have a little bit of a debate maybe next week on this one. We're going to look at first. So we're under on page 4, under 3, where it says, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, after the new birth, things ought to change. Miss Addie often shares this. You might say you're a believer, but I ought to see something happen. Something ought to be different. You can't be living like the world. You can't be practicing sin. You can't. Miss Addie says, no, no, no. Miss Addie, I don't think you're a proponent of once saved, always saved. Is that right? I believe you might. Uh, do you believe that? Once saved, always saved. We're going to look at Hebrews and look at some of the scriptures. So uh, I know we're already set up, right? Right, Terry? <laughs> so we, we're not going to take a test. I'm, I'm not going to say you have to believe this because we can produce scriptures on both sides of this thing. If you read that scripture in Hebrews, it says, how is it that, you, that the blood of Christ can redeem you again if you trample the Son of God afresh once you've come to the knowledge of Christ? So if I start dabbling, so there's those. And so today, Pastor Mike and Terry and I went out to lunch. We debated this and argued it. And I'll just set you up for a tidbit for next week. You can think about it. The scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required, right? It also says, you will ju be judged according to the light that you have been shown. Yeah, these are scriptures, New Testament, out of Jesus' mouth. So, does the road get narrower the longer and the more revelation that you spend in him? If you want to, I don't, I don't base all theology, but so the longer you walk with Christ, the more revelation you have in Christ, the higher the expectation is of you in that relationship pleasing him. Yes? And an analogy, grandbaby, right? Grandbaby's starting to learn how to walk, and they're like falling over. You don't want to bang their head on the coffee table. So like when they're starting to walk, you're like, Look at this, whoa. And when they first let go, it's like, whoa, right? Well, after they start walking, you might be in the kitchen. Yeah, they're, they're just walking. They, they're fine. The expectation, the older we get, the more we know, we have a natural expectation that our children, they know the rules. You know the rules of the house, right? This was my sermon from Sunday, right? That there is a covenant expectation the spiritual laws of the universe set by the one who's in charge has an expectation that his children are going to follow the rules. And if not, there's a discipline that you deserve. So, so we, we can debate this one. I'm thanking God there's grace. But I believe the road does get narrower. And you can be of a principled mindset 
I wonder how much I can get away with before I really fall off the edge. Or I can have a principle, this is last Sunday's sermon, or I can really, really choose to love God so that I always want to please him, that I never want to get near the edge, ever. So when people talk about once saved, always saved, the discussion ought to be how much more are we in pursuit of pleasing him? In, in which verse? Uh, oh, in, yeah, I got you. The one that says, don't trample us. That's in Hebrews. Let's get it there. Hebrews 8, I think it is. Let's take a look. One that says, don't trample on the Son of God again. Uh, certainly Hebrews chapter 12 talks about, I read this at our intercession this morning, that deals with the assembly of the firstborn in Hebrews 12. Be careful you do not refuse to listen to the one who's speaking. He's going to shake everything that can be shaken. Yep. Excuse me? 6-6, six, six, yeah, okay. Oh, 6-6-6, six, 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 that'll tell you something. Okay. Hebrews 6, verse 6 says, um, verse 4, this, this, is a, this ought to convict a whole lot about staying away from the edge. It is, let's start in verse 4. It is impossible to bring back to repentance. Now, wow, impossible to bring back to repentance those who once were enlightened, those who have experienced the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the power of the age to come, who then turn away from God. It is impossible to bring such people back to repentance by rejecting the Son of God. They themselves are nailing Him to the cross again and holding Him up in public shame. So, we know, how many of you have ever backslidden, you don't have to raise your hand, backslidden and then got back on track? I'll raise my hand, okay? And so, we know there's a God, the good news is, why don't we take the situation with uh, Peter, right? Re re rejects Jesus three times, and, and so, we know that he, God is a, is a God of long-suffering, and so... That's the grace. But the point is, once we've come to that place, we need to have this, the, the preaching Sunday was, the reverential fear of God brings life and protection. So once we get to it, as a homework assignment, you might just read uh, that, that Hebrews chapter in verse, I read it this morning, but it is, it's riveting. If you read it loud to yourself, out loud, let your spirit man hear what the soul is saying. But read from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. 
work at living at peace with everyone. Work at living a holy life. And then you'll see, even Moses was in terrible trembling and fear when he saw the awesome power of God. And he deals with Deuteronomy 9 in verse 19. He says, when, remember he comes off the mountain carrying the Ten Commandments, and there's the high priest who's just made a calf, and they're, they're worshiping the idol gods, and at that point, the Lord says, I'm going to kill them all. I'm going to kill Aaron, and I'm killing them all. And then Jesus goes in intercession and says, Father, they're going to look at you and realize they came out of Egypt just for you to slaughter them? What about your covenant agreement with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So the intercessor, Moses, but it says Moses was terribly afraid. And so there ought to be a reverential fear of God recognizing who he is. And this is all coming to a close. And we want to be in that place of self-protection under the shadow of the almighty place. I think there's too much casual stuff going on in the United States today. We make all sorts of loose agreements with social media and gossip. It says no gossiper will inherit the kingdom. People tear each other apart in social media with their opinion that is so valuable. All right, I'm off track. Let me, let me ask you to look at page four there, three, two. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. In fact, you look at those things, it says that those literal words there, the Greek and the Hebrew, you are completely changed. You are a new creation. You are not the same. Even though I'm in the same body, I've got the same DNA, but now I have a different connection to the DNA of one who lives forever. So therefore, I am completely and 100% new. Literally in the middle of that page, says, this word is translated new means something that has not yet ever been. Wow. Mm. So what changed? That's why Miss Addie can say, there I need to see visible change. If I don't see visible change, they didn't really get saved. Their heart ought to be changed. Their mind ought to be renewed. There ought to be a new peace, new life, new spiritual gifts. They ought to be different. They ought to be doing different things. Okay, turn the page. Justification. Only got five minutes left. Justification. The doctrine of justification must be learned diligently, for in it is included all the other doctrines of faith. And it is as sound as the others are as well. This is Luther's treatise, right? Remember when he tacked the indulgences on the door? It is by faith alone. When the Catholic Church was selling indulgences, you want to be saved? You want to be forgiven of your friends? Pay us money. Luther said, no, eh, it's by faith and by faith. Give me a scripture that says faith is the, is the foundation of all salvation. How about for by grace are you saved through faith, yet not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, right? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. It's a free gift. And so justification, that's where when, when, when Protestantism was born out of that Reformation, Luther said, this is wrong, this is an error. We now know that it is by faith and faith in Christ alone. We sing those songs that came out of that period, right? My faith is in him alone. So the doctrine of justification, this means that you are now completely made righteous in Christ. 
That's why when you, read, when you get that down foundationally, you can read the book of Colossians. It says, by the blood of Christ, you can now come into the throne room of grace, sit next to God himself without any fear of judgment. The book of Romans, I think it's 11 times in three chapters, says, you have been made. You have been formed as a new creature in Christ. You are totally different. You'll never be the same. You are a new organism in Christ. Therefore, when you sit next to him, you have no fear of judgment. That's what justification, declaration says, you have been made the righteousness of Christ. That will free us. It frees us up. It's not about performance. It's not about works. But yes, we need to work and we need to perform. But it's not based on salvation. That is not the basis of our salvation. Justification happens by faith. He no longer counts our sin against us. Justification, page 7. He puts Jesus' righteousness, number two there in the middle of the page, he puts Jesus' righteousness on us. The righteousness of Christ, the royal blood, is so exceedingly, abundantly on us that when the Father sees you, even though you may still, you're not perfect, you're not sinless, still messing up, God, because I'm not fully sanctified. I am not fully sanctified yet. I am saved and justified, but I'm not fully sanctified yet. I am still being perfected by the working of the Spirit. Philippians 1.6, he who began the work will perform it till he comes. But until the perfecting of the saints, you fivefold ministers equip the saints to do the work of ministry until the perfecting of the saints in Christ has come. So you are fully justified. Your sin has been washed away. But you're not fully holy yet. He says, be holy as I am holy. You are walking in holiness. He wants you to be holy, but I'm not fully redeemed yet. So look at just, let's look at sanctification. Turn to page 8. Sanctification is the continuing work of God in the life of a believer, making him or her actually holy. It is a process by which one's moral condition is brought into conformity with the legal status before God. As far as God is concerned, in the courtroom of heaven, you have been made legally righteous. But you are not morally complete yet because your mind and your will and your emotion, your stuff, I'm trying, God. I'm getting there. I'm working towards it, Lord. You're correcting me. You're showing me. I'm fa- I'm, and I have a willing heart to go there. Sanctification is the willingness of the people who know they are righteous in him to seek into walking in holiness. Holiness is defined as being set apart. First Peter 2, there in number one. You are a chosen generation, a holy priesthood. Holiness begins with an understanding that we've been accepted by Christ and we now give him the right to direct the rest of our lives. We are his possession. I no longer am owned by myself. I went from, I changed slave camps. I went from slave camp of sin to the slave of Christ. That word used to bother me, but now I'm starting to get like, Paul said, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I used to be a slave under the world system and the thing. I'm no longer. I've traded slave camps. I'm now in the camp in the blood of Jesus. To develop that inner purity and cleanliness, says, Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart. Titus goes on in 2.14, says, purify yourself, 
Cleanse yourself. I share this out of Genesis 35. When Jacob was moving his family, the Lord said, build me an altar. Move to Bethel. The first thing he tells as a patriarch to his family is, get ready to move. Cleanse and purify yourself. Get rid of your idols and put on clean clothing. Those are good words for any member of any family. Get ready. We're moving in Jesus. But you better get rid of your idols. Anything that stands between me and God has got to go. Food, drugs, sex, relationships, movies, media, get rid. If it's standing between you and God, get it out of there. The essential ingredients of the process, number three, the bottom of page eight. Be devoted to scripture. Be devoted to prayer. Be devoted to one another and give each other lots of grace. I like what Tozer cites. If we really start to believe the righteous forgiveness of Christ, Tozer wrote this. Regret for sinful past will remain until we truly believe that for us in Christ, that sinful past no longer exists. Paul says, I know of a longer think about what's my past. I press towards the mark, right? In Christ, accepted by God, I now have Christ's past, his perfection, which is acceptable. In Christ he died, in Christ he rose, in Christ he seated within the circle of God's favored ones. He is no longer angry with himself because he is no longer self-regarding, but Christ-regarding, hence, there's no place of regret. That's Romans 8, 20, 8, 1, right? There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, well, we're not going to have time, but I'd take a look at the last two pages this thing is, why are you here? Why were you created? What is your purpose for God giving you life now? It's this knowledge of him. We might know him. So John 17 there at the top says, what is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowing God. This is eternal life that we may know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There are five basic truths listed there. The foundation principle, God spoke, God is king, God is savior, God is triune, and the godliness means responding to God's revelation. I listed the nature and the character of God, his quality, his power, and his perfection uh, steps, the principles there. In page 11, it says, we want to please him. What pleases him? What offends him? How is that application? And D says, the people who know their God, who are they? So I'll conclude, page 12, it's the evidence of knowing God. And we're probably going to look next week in great detail about the principles where John says that you might know that you are saved. F1 says, evidence of knowing God. Those who know their God have great energy for God. So this, you could check this list. Do you have great energy? Do you get excited about God? Amen. Probably the fact that you're here, yeah. Are you standing for integrity regardless of the cost? Those who know their God have great thoughts about God. They think a lot about Him. Those who know their God have great boldness for God. They're not ashamed of the gospel. And those who know their God have great contentment in God. So Lord, as we move forward... Let us recognize that we lack some knowledge about you and we can measure ourselves on how we pray and what goes on in our hearts. That was 
my desire Sunday was to ask us, what is the true motive of why we do what we do? What is the real motive of what you do, why you do it? So let's stand and Lord, I, I pray that we'll mull around these lessons of life. I, I like some of the principles that the Admiral laid out on how do you cope with life and how do you get through life at the end of our journey. So, Lord, I pray that those things will take root. We'll evaluate them. We'll all make our bed tomorrow. Amen. And then, Lord, I pray, Lord, principally that um, we get grounded in in knowing why we believe what we believe so that we're well-equipped when the neighbor or the person that needs to know the truth, we have something to offer. So, God, I thank you. I pray blessing now upon every member here, all the families, all the battles that your people are in, all the struggles. God, I thank you that you promised that you would not leave us alone. You would go with us. in these journeys. So Lord, I pray, give them rest this week. Lord, I pray that we come back next week equipped again. Lord, show us the revelation in Jesus' name. If you would read for me uh, that Hebrews chapter 12, that last part of it, Hebrews 12, just the last part, the call of God, I think you'll see. All right, God bless y'all. Come with your scriptures next week if you think you want to give us your your basis of why you believe once you're saved or why you might not be saved again. How can you lose salvation? I think maybe we'll split up the kind of all those on one side. No.